Can a genuine believer in Jesus Christ lose his or hers salvation? Can a person who has actually been regenerated, has a new heart, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved, name written in the book of life, then go on to do something or to stop believing and no longer be saved? It's a really important question. There are several passages in the New Testament that this question seems to find its greatest answer. The passage that we're in today is going to lead us right into one of those verses. Last week, if you were with us, as we were in Hebrews chapter 3, the introduction to it, we saw that it was an encouragement Total something true about Jesus that was wonderful and majestic and awe-inspiring. And it's the kind of passage that you could just sing as a celebration. But the verses we're going to cover this week serve primarily as a warning to the audience. Last week, my aim was to highlight the exhortation in chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. This was the command given to holy brothers, as it says. That's Christians. And I repeated that refrain over and over and over again in that sermon in many different ways. I'd say things like, consider Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Put your attention and your affection on him. And I would say the opposite. Don't put it on the world. Put it on him. And I landed the plane with a story from Matthew chapter 14 where Peter sees Jesus, he's with the disciples on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, sees Jesus walking on the water. Jesus calls Peter to come out onto the water. So Peter gets out and walks on the water as Jesus is. And he's doing fine until he sees the waves and he takes his gaze off of Jesus and he begins to sink and Jesus in his good mercy comes over, grabs him by the hand, rescues him from that situation, puts him back in the boat and says to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I want to ask you the question, and what if you were to take your eyes off of Jesus and keep them off of Jesus? What happens then? What would become of you? This is going to be part one of at least two parts, maybe three. As I was walking through the text, I I saw that we have a lot of groundwork to lay in what the author is saying here that will lead us up to a major point being made in the verses that we'll be following. I'm hoping to get to about verse 12, just barely touch on verse 12 today in our flow through the text. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in a section, verses 7 through 19. I'm going to read all the way through 7 through 19. Again, today we're probably just going to get... Uh, barely up to verse 12, but I want you to see this whole passage here. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, dive back on into the text a verse or two at a time. Hebrews chapter 3, I'll read verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. 
They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we read this passage... We appeal to you as we do every time we open the word, hopefully not only together on Sunday before a sermon, but hopefully, Lord, every day of the week that we open the Bible, that we would first pray that you would open our eyes to see what you've written. Lord, help us to yield, to to submit to what you have given to us as a good gift. Lord, I pray that we would take this warning to heart, that every one of us would see these words and be slow ever so slow to cast them off and to think that they might not apply to me. Lord, please help us to soak in these words that were written for our great benefit. God, help us to see your glorious face in these things. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus all the days of our lives. And that, Lord, right now, as as we look at this word, seeking your help, that you would help us to see you more clearly and love you more deeply. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, this is one of those passages in the Bible that begins with therefore. And you might know that whenever you see the therefore, it's good to ask, what is the therefore there for? So we need to peek back at the sentence that precedes this statement. If you have your Bibles, just look back at the second half of the the full sentence prior to this. That's the second half of verse 6. I'll read it out loud. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we are the house of God if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and in our hope. That's where we left off last week. And you'll notice there is a condition listed here. In other words, we are not his house if we don't hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now that confidence being built on what has previously been said is our confidence, our faith in Jesus. Our boasting and our hope. Paul in Galatians chapter 6 talks about boasting and the positive nature of boasting. And the only way we can be positive in our boasting, he says, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul echoes the same kind of sentiment that's going on here, that our confidence, our boasting in our hope, is a looking to Jesus, that if there's anything to boast about, it's that we can be confident in him, not in ourselves. 
In our text today, the author presses on this issue, starting with that therefore. As the Holy Spirit says. Now in this passage, what he's about to do, he's about to cite an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 95, which was, as is the rest of Scripture, written by a man, a mere human, wrote Psalm 95. As a mere human, wrote Hebrews chapter 3. But look here again. This is just as we saw in chapter 1 of Hebrews. The writing of Old Testament scripture is attributed to the Holy Spirit. You see that? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. You know what the author doesn't say? No, just as that guy in the Old Testament said, or that the psalmist wrote, says, as the Holy Spirit says. And he goes on to Cite Psalm 95. This is so important to us because we know that as we look at the scripture, the Bible, the word of God, we see it as that, the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why... This author can rightly say, say, the Holy Spirit said this. Not just a man wrote this and the Holy Spirit said this was good enough. It's pretty close. It would be helpful. The Holy Spirit says this. When you read the Bible, you are reading the words of an all-holy, sovereign, creator God who in love condescended in communicating to us through words that we may know him. It is so foolish to reject passages of scripture on the charge that, well, that's just Paul's opinion. Or that's just the way that John talks. No, these are the very words of God given for your benefit and mine. So if I were to ask, who said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Who said that the wages of sin is death? Who is it who said, in command, wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. All of y'all, submit to rulers. Pay your taxes. God so loved the world. Even the hardest parts of the Bible, to understand or to obey, are given to us by God. They are His words. You can try to play that game, but that's all it is. It's a game. The reason that I pause here to make this point from this text is because there are passages in the Bible that will press on your conscience. They will make you feel uncomfortable. And for the record, the more the world has influence over you, the more uncomfortable you will feel by those passages, and the more likely you will feel uncomfortable more often by those passages. Do you know why they do that? Do you know why verses in the Bible grate against our conscience? Do you know why they press on our minds and our hearts? They were designed to. God in his infinite mercy and wisdom has given us a Bible full of tens of thousands of verses. And unless you are perfect, you do not yet understand or agree with all of them. 
And it just so happens that this section in Hebrews chapter 3, I suspect, includes a couple of those uncomfortable verses. If you're not a believer here with us today, I want you to take a note of something. As believers, we take the Bible seriously. We want to submit ourselves to it, and we know we do it imperfectly, and we're going to effort the rest of our life to try to daily fall under the authority of the Bible and be careful to not put the Bible under our authority or to place it under the opinions of the world. If you're going to start anywhere in seeking who this God really is, look in his word and see his words to us as authoritative and true. And, And follow the lead of Christians that you observe in life who look at the Bible and say, it's true. This is written. And when we come to passages that we would say, I don't know if I agree with that. We submit to the word and not the other way around. And so it's with that serious trust in and submission to the words of God that we continue. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is again cited from Psalm 95, as I said before. It's a psalm that warns us to not harden our hearts like the Old Testament Israelites did during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now just to prompt your memories on what the author is referring to here about these, this rebellion, this testing time. Last week, we saw that the author compared Jesus with Moses. Moses was the Old Testament prophet who was called and commissioned by God to stand before Pharaoh and demand that he release God's people from slavery in Egypt, that they may worship their God. Pharaoh, of course, refuses to allow this to happen. After all, he quite enjoys the benefits of a million-man slave labor force at his disposal. God then displays mighty wonders through Moses in the form of ten plagues on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. Eventually, Pharaoh relents. He allows the people to leave and head out into the wilderness. Even if you don't know the Bible, even if you've never read read these passages in the book of Exodus, you may have seen movies, Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt, There's various different movies that point back to this time period because of how fantastic this story is. This is the story that will culminate in the parting of the Red Sea in order to finally release the Egyptians' grip on the Israelites. The Egyptian army pursues the Israelites to the Red Sea. God supernaturally parts a wall of water on the right and on the left. His people walk through. The Egyptians pursue. God causes the water to crash back down, destroying the army. This was the most miracle-filled period of history since the creation of the world until we get to Jesus, who is, for the record, better than Moses, as we saw last week. But while the miracles that occurred during that event are extraordinary, and it continues, there's more and more miracles that will happen on a daily basis in front of these people, Perhaps the most perplexing occurrences take place after the people are redeemed out of slavery and find themselves in the wilderness. And the reason I think that we can say that they're even more perplexing, at least to my mind, is because in very short order, 
These very same people who observed all of these supernatural wonders turned their hearts away from the God who rescued them. In fact, they they even built an idol to worship. They rejected Moses as God's leader for them. They complain and they grumble and they repeatedly refuse to obey God. And that's the rebellion that our author is referencing here. He continues on. Let's, I'm going to look at eight through or nine through eleven. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, "They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways." As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, so this is God speaking to the people, saying, "Because of this rebellion." Because of this turning away and hard-heartedness towards God, God swore in his wrath that they should not enter his rest. So what was the consequence of the rebellion? The people were not allowed to enter the promised land. The rest being referenced here is the promised land rest. You see, God wasn't going to bring them out of Egypt, that they would just exist forever in the wilderness as a desert-wandering people. The promise always was, bring you out of there, that I may make you a people and bring you into a land that I have promised your ancestors, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised land being the land that was, at that day, currently under the rule of the Canaanites. There were seven smaller nations of peoples that had taken over that land and were dwelling there, and God had Proclaim judgment on them for the hundreds of years of hard-heartedness that they had represented and showed, demonstrated by their their life and their actions. God was to bring the Israelites into this promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. God literally made the entire nation of Israel, rather than go into the promised land, he caused them to remain in the desert for 40 years. That's why it says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. That's that period he's talking about. 40 years. They were not allowed to enter his rest. And the entire corporate body of Israel had to remain outside, not receiving the promise, promise for four decades. Why 40 years? I want to show you why it's 40 years. In the book of Numbers... We get the accounting of the people after about a year coming up to the edge of the promised land. There was a river on the eastern edge of the land that was to be the promised land. That's the Jordan River. And they were to cross over that river. That was to be entering into that land. When they got to Kadesh, they were preparing to go on in. And Moses, who was leading the people at this time, this this is still pretty fresh after they had left Egypt. He gets 12 men, 12 spies, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to go into that promised land and to survey it, to check it out, to see what it was going to be like, and perhaps to plan and strategize how they should enter on in. Those spies went in, and they found two things to be true. The first thing is that it was certainly a promised land flowing with milk and honey. They brought back grapes that were so big, men had to carry them between each other on a pole. That was how heavy these giant grapes were. They they saw so much good in the land, green pastures for their cattle, fruit abundant. 
everything that they could need as a nation to survive was there. That was the first thing that they all agreed that they saw there. The second thing that they were all actually in agreement, these 12 spies were in agreement that they saw, was mighty warrior nations, powerful and strong, with fortified cities and men so big that they made the Israelites seem like grasshoppers by comparison. And so these 12 come back to give the report to the people about what it was that they saw. And while they were all in agreement on those things, the interpretation of what those things meant, the application by 10 of them was, therefore, we should not do what God has commanded for us to do. We should turn around. We should go back to the wilderness. It'd be better for us to die in the wilderness than to go into this land. Only two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, remained courageous enough to say, we can take them. By God's power, we can do what he told us he will have us do. Numbers chapter 14, 34 gives us the reason why 40 years was the punishment. I'll read it out loud to you. According, this is God speaking to the people in judgment because they refused to obey him by going into the promised land. God says, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days. That's how long the spies went out. A year for each day you shall bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So the reason the number 40 was chosen is that's a year for every day. The spies went into the land and the people were waiting to hear the report. And that 40 years is how long it took for the entire generation of adults who were responsible for this disobedience to die off. So God said, nope. All of those 20 years and older will never be allowed to enter with two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, the two who were not afraid. Is this too severe? Does that sound harsh to you? A year of suffering for every day? Does it feel harsh, rigid, stern? Many have seen this and thought of it as inflexible, too strict, unmerciful. I mean, come on, just because the people had a rough start in the wilderness and were afraid... Is that really worth 40 years of punishment? And that 40 years, as would be clear here, meant that those people would die there and never enter. It wasn't 40 years and then enter. It was 40 years and never enter. Be buried in the sand. What do you think about that? Because I've heard people say that God is not just. And you know this. Have you ever wondered for yourself how God could be just in the face of some of these things? Some argue that if God were really just, he would not, could not permit punishment to be so disproportionate to the offense. Some people see it. To that objection, I have two responses that I'll offer in question form. The first is this. Why did God keep the Israelites from entering the promised land? Why is it that God swore in his wrath that they should not enter 
his rest? Remember the story of the 12 spies? What did they say? They preferred slavery back in Egypt or death in the wilderness to entering into the promised land. That's what the people said. When they heard the report from Joshua and from Caleb, they were so angry at Moses and so angry at Joshua and Caleb, they actually picked up stones to kill them. That's how angry they were. And they said, bring us back to Egypt. They're starting to collect uh, uh, votes on what leaders they should find to take them back to slavery in Egypt, where they were killing the, the infant boys in Egypt. And others were saying, let's just go die in the wilderness. It'd be better to die. Let us die in the wilderness. And so God said, okay. In other words, God gave them exactly what they wanted. They didn't want to go into the promised land. They wanted to die in the desert. And God said, then die in the desert you will. Numbers 14 21 through 22. I'm going to read read a little passage through 30 here. You can just listen along to this. If you want to read this story later, read all of Numbers 14 to see where we're drawing this from. God says, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I will make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. So who got to go in? Caleb and Joshua. The only two who wanted to go in. So the first reason, reason here, that it cannot be said that God is unjust in this is because he simply gave the people what they wanted. To my mind, I cannot understand how a person can claim that God would be unjust to give a person what they asked for. There are more reasons than this, but these are the two here. Second reason, this is certainly not injustice on God's behalf. What were the 40 years marked by? In fact, what did that 40 years look like for the Israelites? We see some of it here. Rebellion. Testing. Hard-heartedness. Provoking of God. Always going astray in their hearts. In other words, the sinning did not stop after the people were turned away from the promised land back into the desert. It is not as though the people repented before the Lord and set their hearts to never grumble again. And in fact, most of the Israelite sins in that period took place during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, during the 40-year punishment. The attempt to take the promised land without God after he told them not to. The infamous Korah's rebellion you can read about. The grumbling for the water at Meribah. The whole event with the bronze serpent that even Jesus references back to in the Gospels. The worship of the false god Baal at Peor. All of those atrocities took place during their punishment years. The unbelieving hard hearts of the rebellious Israelites did not only result in them being cast into the wilderness, but it kept them there. 
As I was looking at this, I was reminded by what it says in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. This is what God says about a nation under his judgment. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, that's even harsher judgment than what the Israelites were receiving here. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. We could be left to wonder what would have happened if the Israelites did wholeheartedly repent and turn to God and love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we don't know. Because that's not what happened. Those 40 years were filled with persistent complaining and rejection of God and his leaders in rebellion. Open attempts to turn away from God time and time again. You know, for many people, I know that their biggest moral objection to the Christian doctrine of hell is the duration of it. Okay, okay, maybe a worldly person who doesn't really believe in God, is not really sure what they think, might be able to say, I can kind of get my mind around the idea that you might deserve a kind of punishment for a kind of sin. You break a law, you you get a slap on the wrist. Okay, I might be able to get my mind around there. But eternity, eternity of eternal conscious torment and suffering forever and ever, how can that be just? A man can only live 120 years-ish on this earth. How is it possible that somebody in that finite period of time could be deserving of an infinite billions and billions of years of punishment? You heard the objection? You feel it? So let's answer that real quick. How is it just for hell to last forever? And if you don't know this, you need to. People all over the place holding a Bible in their hands have done everything they can to try to find their way out of that conundrum. No, no, it must not be forever. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just a certain amount of time and then you can get out. Maybe there's a second chance after. Maybe, no, the Bible doesn't say any of that. But the reason people are looking is because they're motivated by that misunderstanding. How is it just for hell to last forever? I think there are several reasons given in the Bible. But there's one of them we can see right here by implication. Here's the principle. While under judgment, sin is still being counted. In other words, penalties accrue. Try this on as an illustration. Imagine a man were to be sentenced to 20 years in prison for arson. But while he is serving his sentence, he kills a prison guard. What's going to happen? He's going to get another sentence. They don't go, well, he's already already in prison, so... No. His law-breaking can accrue, and the penalty can therefore accrue. The two sentences now accumulate. In fact, it's easy to argue that this should be a, because of showing a multiplicity, a, a, a continuing towards a downward trajectory, that there should be an even harsher punishment for the second crime. Now, imagine for a moment, extend this out, that a man could live forever in prison. But every year that he is serving a sentence previously established, 
he does another crime. He kills another guard. He starts another uprising. He kills a cellmate. He, he starts fire to a, a, the, the wing of the, the prison that he can. What will happen to that man? If he does that persistently every year that he's paying off his previous sentence, that man will never get out. The sentence never gets paid in full. It just multiplies. You and I live on an earth where God's common grace is active. This means that God, God pours a kind of grace on every human that exists. None of us get immediate judgment for our sins. We're all still here. It's God's grace. It's common grace. The rain, which is a blessing, falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. Hell, though, is a place where the common grace of God is not poured out. The kind of common grace that God gives this earth is in part a restraint on evil. Why is it that a person without any external laws might not act on every possible sinful impulse? It's because that person is an image bearer of God in an active common grace where they have a conscience that might keep them from kicking the puppy. What if that was removed? What if the common grace of God that kept us from being as utterly depraved as we could be, as completely and absolutely wicked as we could be, what would that look like? I think the answer is hell. If you imagine hell as a place where people are genuinely repentant of their sins and crying out to God in faith, you're not picturing hell rightly. It is a place where sin continues forever and ever and ever, and so does the just judgment for sin. Where the people go on day after day after day, not loving the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. Accruing more and more sin deserving of punishment. Jesus calls hell a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you remember in the New Testament, in the Gospels, who are the only people who gnashed their teeth? The Pharisees in their vitriol against Jesus. They gnashed their teeth at the Son of God. And that will continue for forever. The book of Revelation records a time when the wrath of God will be poured out on this earth. Cosmic judgment will be rained down on people in such a way that all people know it's from God. And do you know how the people on earth respond when God strikes the planet, this planet, with those plagues at the end? Let me read a quick passage for you in Revelation 16. God is pouring judgment. God is pouring wrath. And this is what it says about the people who are under that judgment of wrath. They, it says, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Imagine that 
The whole earth acknowledges that these supernatural judgments are from God. There are no more atheists in the end. There are zero atheists on earth by that point. They either died off previously or they have been converted to believing in the supernatural because they know they are under the judgment of an actual supernatural, extraordinary, outside of nature, God. And how do they respond when they realize they were wrong all their lives? And there is a God and I'm under his wrath. They curse him. How could they stop God's judgment, God's wrath? They could repent of their sin. They could love and worship God, but they refuse. Ezekiel 18.25 says, God speaking here. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? God will punish the unbeliever for all eternity. And God punished the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness. Now what does this have to do with us? Does this author not know that Christians are reading this? We know, we know in the Old Testament they did bad things and they turned from God and they rebelled against. Why is he using this in his discourse to us? Look at the next verse. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's why he quoted that. This is why he cited Psalm 95. Don't let that happen to you. See how helpful the Old Testament is? You see how you need to read the Old Testament and read it to your kids and soak it in for yourself? That is used as a warning for us. We don't just go, oh, that's interesting. It described that people once turned away from God. No, don't let it happen to you. The author warns us from thinking that the sins of those Israelites cannot be repeated. It has happened before. It could happen again. That people who had made a covenant with God could rebel against him. Have you ever broken a promise? You ever made a covenant and then broken it? People do this all the time. And people make promises to God and break them all the time. People make promises to congregations and brothers and sisters and family members and friends all the time and then break them. You all know this. In fact, hopefully, there might be a little bit of shame in your heart and your mind thinking, oh Lord, I have, I have not been a yes means yes person all my life. I have not stood by my conscience and convictions and covenants and promises, and I've broken those, Lord. You know this. But what about your covenant with God? Did you notice in verse 8 through 8 and 9, we were there, what it said about testing? I just want to read this one more time to make sure we see this. Verses 8 and 9 says, Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. The day of testing. 
Deuteronomy 8.2. Let me show you another passage here. Deuteronomy 8.2. I'll read it out loud. It says this. And you shall remember, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you. Why? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The wilderness period was not just a time of judgment. It was a time of testing. And in the next verse, in verse 9, look what it said there. Where your fathers put me to the test. What? That was for your testing. But you tried to test me. You tested my patience. In the same way today, your most difficult seasons are designed for a purpose. They're designed to test you. Next week, we're going to continue this passage, and there's some big questions, and there's some big encouragements coming, I think. But one I just want to land on here is what this passage has already said about testing. So far in chapter 3, who we're seeing tested here, verses 7 through, uh, through 11, we just read there, is that the people here failed the test. They failed day after day after day after day, 40 years. They continually failed the test. But there is one who never failed the test. In chapter 2, verse 18, the very last Verse, before we get into chapter 3, it says this about Jesus. For because he himself has suffered when tested, the word is tempted in the ESV here. That's the same root word as tested in chapter 3. Because he, was suffer- he, he himself has suffered when tempted or tested, he is able to help those who are being tested or tempted. Jesus lived his whole life as one of the testing and of tempting, all the way up to his death, his suffering, his trial. Death was a temptation to get off the cross. And he alone passed the test. You might remember that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before his ministry began, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by Satan for how many days? Forty. And where was he? In the wilderness. For 40 days. One more thing. We didn't get there very far today, but you might remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, 40-year wandering, what was the most common argument that the people had against God? I'm hungry! Repeatedly. I don't like the food you gave us. If only we had meat. If only we could go back to Egypt where there was food. I'd rather be a slave with food than a free man starving. What did Jesus eat when he was in the wilderness? Nothing. Jesus bore the weight of testing as the perfect Jew. The only true, real Israelite. 
And it is he, because he suffered while tempted, can help us as we are being tempted. Coming back to where we started and the first six today. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You can be the house of God if you put your confidence in this Jesus. And you just, just that one time, like the thing you remembered? No, no, that you hold fast your confidence. That means that every day you have testing, you have temptation, you have trial. You look to the one who made it through all of that perfectly. The one who did it. If you were to have a hundred friends who all tried to find an X marks the spot on a map out in the mountains here for a really cool site they all wanted to go see and none of them actually made it there except for one, who would you ask when you needed help for directions, the one who made it, the one who actually arrived. Jesus is the one who actually arrived. The groundwork being laid right here, the severity of what is being said about the rebellious people in the wilderness, the severity being drawn on and then offered before us in a warning Take care, lest there be in any of you this rebellious, this unbelieving heart, this same kind of problem that might lead you to fall away from the living God, as happened to them. This groundwork needs to be laid for us to answer the question, can a Christian lose his salvation? I care far more about being true, clear, and helpful than I do about leaving you with a cliffhanger. So I believe the answer to that is no. I do not believe that the Bible tells us that a genuinely regenerate person can go to hell. But then we have some things to look at next week in this text. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We pray that as we read passages like this, we will let the weight that you want them to have on our shoulders actually sit there. Lord, let us be a people who who gets very familiar with the discomfort that our flesh might feel when we open passages of the Bible like this. Lord, let us read your Old Testament, the, the, the stories of these people of old who in heart are so much like us, Lord, that apart from you and your saving grace on us and apart from the new covenant promises of Jesus, we'd have no hope to make ourselves different than them. Lord, thank you that we have help that they did not have. Moses led them and he failed. Moses could not enter the land because he failed. Moses could not obey you perfectly. He failed. Even their leader could not bring them to the promised land. But we have a leader who can. Lord, let our true, ultimate, final, complete, high priest, full, complete prophet, our leader, Jesus, your son, greater than angels, Become one of us. Father, let us follow him. Let us follow his lead. Let us seek his help when we are being tempted. Where the Israelites could not have appealed to Moses for help when being tempted because he failed. We have one to whom we can appeal. 
We have one that we can cry out to when we need help. Lord, let us be a people who does that. First and foremost, before we try to find solutions in any other way, let us look to you. Let us follow your son. Let us trust the word your Holy Spirit has inspired that we may enter your rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.